Hello. Welcome to the second installment of the novel, Snooping Caprock. In the first segment, we met Sandra Furlow, a receptionist in a dermatologist's office who combats boredom by attending support groups and spying on the people of Caprock. In this reading, Sander will have a conversation with Joe Epps, a police detective, peep into an old friend's back window, and attend grief and addiction support groups. After the phone call I made reporting that the monkeys were out at the zoo, the reasonable expectation is for the police to come knocking on my door immediately. But it's 10 o'clock the next morning before Joe Epps shows up to question me. People have mixed feelings about Joe. Opinion went against him when he ruined his marriage by having an affair, but then he apprehended a violent escaped convict and that made him a hero. One of two detectives on the police force, he's reputed to be dependable but unimaginative. And if there's ever a need for imagination on a case, it's this one. There are two people in the waiting room when Joe saunters in. His cheap suit hangs crookedly and he's got a shaving nick on his jaw, but he's clean and in good shape which makes him stand out in a town where body odor is the happy norm and obesity is at a record high. Got a few minutes, he asks, leaning over the counter and scanning my area. His aftershave drifts pleasantly. What can I do for you, Joe? I know why he's here. Why were you at the zoo last night, he asks. Everybody's blaming Tansy Carlin for leaving the elephant enclosure opened, I tell him, but that doesn't sound right to me, so I thought I'd go look around. Monkeys were out. I called. That's all. Carlin said she thought she probably did it, he says. That's as good as confession in my book. Two locks were involved, Joe. That'd be double carelessness. Also, how did the monkeys get out? Well, that's what I'm here to find out, he says. I had nothing to do with it, I tell him. You just happened to be there. Yes. He wants to doubt me, but I meet his gaze unflinchingly. What do you think, I ask. Someone set the monkeys free. Someone let the elephants out. If it wasn't Tansy and it wasn't me, who was it? Usually what looks like happened is what happened, he says. See, not sharp, no imagination. And what does it look like happened to you, I ask him. Tansy freed the elephants and you freed the monkeys. But Joe, neither one of us freed anything. It's the simplest explanation, he explains. Has anyone been in touch with Hector Vasquez, I ask him. He's the guy in charge out there. Saying his name aloud stirs a memory. There was a Hector Vasquez who attended several meetings of addiction a few years ago, a round, short man with kind eyes, quiet, late 50s. Could this be the same guy? He's somewhere in Mexico, Joe tells me. He can't be reached. Are you and Tansy Carlin friends? Not really, I say. Then how do you know she didn't do it? Well, she's being tried and found guilty before anyone knows what happened. I know from his point of view that my indignation is unfounded, but people jumping to conclusions is just wrong. Still waters run deep. He offers the irrelevant cliché with a smirk, trying to make me think he knows something I don't. What do you mean? She's not great-looking. She has no personality. She's just the kind to go berserk. You think she's guilty because she's boring and unattractive, I ask. I think lonely women get attention any way they can, he says. What an asshole. Maybe you should ask me if I saw anything unusual. Did you? I saw monkeys running around outside their cages, I say. That's unusual. Did they get them all back? Yeah, they didn't wander far, he says. You're not being much help. Unlike Tansy, I'm not going to say I did something I didn't do. I was there. That's all. I didn't see anyone. I didn't see any cars around or any odd lights. I didn't hear anything you wouldn't expect to hear at a zoo. Okay, then. 
He pushes away from the counter, preparing to depart. Maybe your department should set up some kind of guard or patrol, I suggest. Just because something odd's going on doesn't mean criminal behavior's involved, he says. There'll turn out to be a reasonable explanation. Just you wait and see. Well, you won't be so calm when someone opens the tiger's cage, I say. I'm pretty sure Kaprov doesn't have a tiger. You should watch what you tell me. Now if the tiger gets out, you'll be my primary suspect. It's a comfort to know you're on the job, I tell him. Turning, he strolls out of the waiting area, holding his head high and his shoulders firm, as though we'd had a productive conversation. This morning on television, the local news focused on the two recent zoo escapes. The elephants getting out is still being blamed on Tansy, but she was out to dinner with her parents when the monkeys got out. Logic implies that if she's been cleared of the monkeys, she had nothing to do with the elephants either, but logic is in short supply in Caprock. Hazel comes in an hour late. I assume she cleared her tardiness with ham. Her gray hair is brittle and messy, and her eye makeup is smudged beneath her eyes. She looks older than her 60 years. What's going on with you? I ask. You've been coming in late, and we haven't talked in ages. Nothing's going on. I've just been a little tired lately, that's all. You're not sick, are you? I ask. Breast cancer is common among women her age. Last year, it caught up with three women in my groups. No, she says, I'm fine. How's your dad? Lately, her 83-year-old father has become a handful. Depressed, accusatory, paranoid. Maybe his dementia has escalated to a new distressing level. He's fine. I'm fine. We're all fine, she says. Now I've got to go to work. Her words hang in the air as she hustles away. Despite her abrupt assertion, something's definitely going on. And something's not right with Ham, either. He's shuffling around like he's loaded with a heavy burden. Probably his wife, Millie, is giving him a hard time. Every once in a while, she does things that don't make sense. For instance, last year, she went to the park two blocks from her house, chose a place, and dug a hole that she says was intended to be her grave. And several months before that, she doused a neighbor's tree in kerosene and set it on fire. Poor Ham. Today, instead of walking with my friends at lunch, I go home to check on Edgar. Edgar is a big cat. His long white hair makes him look cuddly, but he prefers not to be stroked or handled. He likes to eat and lie in the sun. I park in the driveway and go in through the back door. He's fine. Lying in a triangle of light on the kitchen floor, he's too comfortable to move when I enter, but simply gives an absent-minded meow and drops his head back to the floor. There are absolutely no thoughts in his brain. And, come to think of it, I doubt if elephants and monkeys have much clarity either. This realization reminds me of Tansy Carlin, who, when I knew her in school, also always seemed slow and helplessly out of touch. So that afternoon at work, between the arrivals of eczema outbreaks and crusty moles, I look up Tansy's address and number on the online local white pages. Maybe I'll swing by her place later and see how she's doing. In the evening, we welcome a new member, Ellen, to grief. Ellen's mother died a week ago, and in her sorrow, she has trouble getting through her explanatory introduction because she can't stop crying. It's sad when a loved one dies. Ellen is a pretty woman, shiny brown hair, clear skin, a few years younger than me. My first thought is that she'd be perfect for Pete, the accountant who collects power tools and who's also in grief. It's our custom to greet newcomers with concerned questions. We ask about their support systems, how they've weathered previous losses, and if they have hobbies or interests that might distract them. Most people have friends or relatives to bolster and encourage them through the grieving period, but some don't. Unlike my other groups, grief is led by a qualified counselor, Wendy Cowart, who guides every meeting according to a set pattern. This week, I'm sitting to Wendy's right, so it's my turn to voice the first question. 
Do you have a boyfriend or someone in your life that you can talk to when you're feeling low? I ask Ellen, glancing toward Pete to see if he's showing an interest. He leans forward, clearly paying attention. I broke up with my boyfriend. She speaks and sobs at the same time. He wouldn't come with me when I visited her in the hospital. He didn't want to hear that I was sad. Pete's not the only one interested. Kirk, who's here because his brother was killed in a car wreck a few months ago, also observes with an ardent gaze. Hmm, two guys going after the new girl. People often don't know how to respond to emotional pain, Wendy says. Wendy has a tendency to state the obvious as though it's a fresh and wise insight. I started coming to grief four years ago when my grandmother died. She was 80, and at the time of her death, I hadn't been to see her in several months. I thought I should feel guilt or distress, or at the very least, a sense of loss, but I didn't. So I showed up here to see what these emotions looked like. And what I've learned is that every person experiences and reacts to the death of a loved one differently. Because there's a professional facilitator attached to grief, the dynamic during the break is different from the other groups, where we just sort of loosely share personal information and opinions. For one thing, Wendy doesn't allow people to go outside and smoke. She thinks the separation of the group will disrupt the flow in the circle. So the few people who are longing to go outside are jittery and a little hostile. As we gather around the coffee pot, the break always focuses on Wendy, who, taking the central position, seems to think she's entitled to the extra attention. During the session, she exercises tight control over the discussion, keeping us on point and holding her own participation to a reasonable amount. But during break, it's the Wendy show all the way. Her gestures are flamboyant, her voice carries, her opinions are emphatic. She's unable to tolerate a single conversation that doesn't revolve around her. I don't often harbor a strong aversion towards someone, but I find Wendy annoying. That tansy Carlin ought to be horse-whipped, she says, flicking her fluffy orange curls over her shoulder and emitting an indignant sniff. Being careless with those large animals that way, somebody could have been hurt. But what about the monkeys? This from Maria, whose husband succumbed to cancer last year. It's been proven that she had nothing to do with that. She's in cahoots with a partner, Wendy says. Whoever called it in, that's who did it. Uh-oh, Wendy's conviction is impressive considering she knows nothing about it. Lurleen, who was there with me when I made the call, sends me a fearful look. What if the person who called the police just happened to be at the zoo checking things out? I ask. I can't be quiet when it's me she's maligning. Maybe that person was just being a proactive citizen. Then that person ought to be horsewhipped too, she says. A lot of horsewhipping goes on in Wendy world. People shouldn't go interfering in police investigations. What investigation, I ask. No one's even talked to the manager. Convicting a person because they call the police is a bad precedent, Lurleen says, showing spunk in the face of Wendy's certainty. Sandra and I were there when Karen reported the elephants, Pete says, and no one's accusing Karen of being involved. He's placed himself next to the new girl, and Kirk's on her other side. She doesn't look pleased. If it's the smell of cigarettes that's putting that sour expression on her face, Pete might as well give up before he makes a single move. Smokers have a hard time finding love. You don't know she wasn't in on it, Wendy would argue with a stump. Which group was it anyway? Possession obsession? That's hardly even a real group. Pete and I exchange eye rolls. There's no talking to someone like Wendy. She's going to believe what she believes. After grief, I swing by Tansy's house. In high school, she always seemed overly concerned about what other people thought. To be held in citywide contempt must be devastating to her. She lives on the southwest side, a run-down but respectable part of town. 
The houses are small, and the cars and the driveways aren't new, but the people who live here go to work every day, and their kids do okay in school. It's exactly where I thought she would end up. I cruise along the street, peering at the addresses, until I find Tansy's. It's the second house from the end, so I pull around the corner and park on the side street. Because Tansy's my age, and because we grew up in the same town and attended the same schools, I have a preconceived idea of what I'll see when I look in on her life. She'll be married with a couple of kids. Her husband will be beefy with short brown hair. The focal point of her low-ceilinged living room will be a massive television. Her furniture will be ordinary, and her walls will be beige. The grass this time of year is dry. It crunches beneath my feet as I cross the lawn to her front window. Concealed in the shadow of a mimosa, I crouch and look in. Because the room is quite dark, I can't tell much about it. A rectangular piece of furniture that could be a table or a desk. Beyond that, the outline of a doorway. There's a shifting dim light coming from the back of the house, an indication that the television is on. I creep to the side window, get a different perspective of the same room. There's no fence marking the back of the house, so I turn the rear corner. Patio doors offer a panorama of the living room. Just as I predicted, the television dominates. Daniel Craig is on, a Bond movie. He still looks dapper, no bruises or lacerations, so it must be near the beginning. A bottle of red wine is on the coffee table, along with two empty glasses. A clear bowl holds what looks like chunks of cheddar, and two small snack plates sit near it. On the couch, illuminated by the colors emanating from the TV, two people are locked in an embrace. I cross to the other side of the broad window, achieving a better angle. The couple on the couch is really going after it, rocking back and forth, limbs clutching, clothes flung. In this corpulent age, it's not an attractive scene. Two hogs wrestling. The woman, plump knees spread, prone in missionary position, turns her face in my direction. Her mouth gapes and her eyes are glazed with pleasure. Recognizing Tansy, I think, well, good. She's not dwelling on this mess she's in. She throws her head back, raises her hips to meet the hand that's servicing her. But wait a minute. Something's odd about this picture. I'm looking at two pairs of breasts. Tansy's with a woman. I take in the short hair and heavy masculine features of her partner. Tansy's a lesbian. I recognize her partner, too. Beth Kyle, a few years younger than Tansy and me. There's a bit of a simian appearance about Beth. Small eyes, broad forehead, sunken nose bridge with flaring nostrils. I know very little about her. This changes everything. What I thought was a prank now takes on the sinister aspect of a setup. For the most part, folks in Caprock look the other way when someone deviates from the path of normalcy. But there are always those who feel entitled to judge, and open-mindedness isn't a prevailing characteristic in this conservative county in the center of the country. Setting animals loose at the zoo is precisely the sort of thing a small-minded, homophobic redneck would do to get someone in trouble. Returning to my car, I sit behind the steering wheel and ponder what I have just learned. Tansy's not a loud or overt person. The culprit would have to know her well in order to know her sexual preference. Deduction? It's someone who works with her. A visit to the zoo, this time in daylight, is called for. I stop by the grocery store on the way home and buy a bottle of red wine and a container of cheese chunks. Fifteen minutes later, when I settle in front of the television with a glass of Merlot and a snack plate of cheddar, the Bond movie is still on. Daniel Craig is looking the worse for wear. Edgar settles next to my thigh and purrs. When I stroke his head, he rolls on his back, captures my hand between his two front paws, and claws at my tender inner wrist with his rear legs. Even though I have been warned that he's not affectionate, his hostility is unexpected. 
In the morning, the scratches on my wrist are red, swollen, and so itchy that I have to apply an antihistamine cream. When I meet Janine in the garage, she says that she and the other up-and-down walkers missed me yesterday. I'm not going to walk today, either, I tell her. I'm curious about the zoo, so during lunch, I'm going over there to check things out. Do you ever think that you latch on to things that are really none of your concern as a way to avoid thinking about your life? She asks. Do you ever think that you sit at home alone every night because you're too lazy to find something interesting to do? I ask right back. Our mutual candor isn't out of the ordinary, but what she said to me was mean, and my reply was equally mean. Miffed, we make the journey to our offices in silence and don't look at each other as we enter our separate workspaces. At around 10, a man wearing a green uniform enters the waiting room and, approaching the reception window, presents me with a cheerful bouquet of chrysanthemums. The accompanying card reads, Sandra, I'm sorry I was rude to you earlier. I know you only want to help when you take on issues like what's going on at the zoo. I'll come with you during lunch today, and we can snoop together. Your friend, Janine. As it turns out, all the women who usually walk the stairs decide they'd enjoy some fresh air during the middle of the day. Like young students, they're excited by a field trip. The six of us pile into two cars and meet in front of the main entrance to the zoo. Our vehicles are the only ones in the lot. We decide that, after our walkthrough, we'll gather around one of the tables across the way and have a picnic. So, lunches stashed in the trunk of my car, we exchange our heels for walking shoes and enter the zoo through the wide front entryway. No one's manning the reception booth. It's a beautiful day. The breeze is minimal, offering only a current now and then, and the air is crisp and cool. Sweater weather. What is it we're looking for? One of the women asks. Anything that's the least bit suspicious, I tell her. Well, don't you think it was just a prank? It must be. There's no reasonable motive. This from Janine, who's taken the rear position and is herding us along as though she's a sheepdog. It's not my place to discuss Tansy's sex life, so I don't mention my theory. The first attraction is a good-sized pool of water surrounded by a thigh-high picket fence that's in need of paint. Beyond the barrier, ducks float, heads tucked in slumber. Geese waddle on a cement island in the center, and two swans cruise regally along the far shore. The water is greenish and murky. A fixture rising from the center island seems to be a fountain, but it's not turned on. As the women adjust to the somnolent atmosphere, they grow quiet and droopy. I look in all directions, studying the landscape and measuring the upkeep the place must require. Just as we were the only ones in the parking lot, we appear to be the only visitors in the whole zoo, and no staff is to be seen in any direction. It's so silent that it's creepy. A couple of years ago, there were rumors about adding a nocturnal exhibit and an aquarium and enlarging some of the enclosures. But the idea didn't go anywhere because in order to afford the improvements, the city was going to start charging an entry fee, an unpopular proposal. So the zoo remains as it was when it was built, a quaint throwback to the 1950s, with twisting pathways, cracked cement benches, placed beneath elms, and lines of old-fashioned cages. Visible from this central point, a snack bar that's closed, a playground with the swings and seesaw removed, a whole row of square cages that stand empty. Moving to the gate of the duck pond, Janine gives a deliberate yank to the padlock that blocks the latch. It's secure, thank God, she says. They can't get out. We're all safe. Janine can be funny. We circle the waterfowl and head toward the next perimeter, a wooden fence that contains common farm animals. Donkeys, cows, and goats are spaced along the fence, staring dully outward through the widely spaced slats. Chickens scratch and peck. Two small, fat pigs are penned in a corner, held separately from the other animals. 
It looks like it's been weeks since the area's been cleaned. Because there's no wind to carry it, the odor of dung hangs in the air, motionless and offensive. We all lean on the fence and look at the indolent beasts. The only sound is the buzzing of the flies. They seem so bored, says one woman. How long's it been since you've been out here? asks another. Not long enough. This place is pathetic. Maybe someone's turning animals loose as a way of pointing out what a crummy zoo this is. The pigs are cute, Janine says. We continue around the corral to a long row of large cages. The first one, Rumi, freestanding, holds the monkeys. I walk around the cage until I get to the door on the opposite side. No padlock and chain here. It's a knob lock with an added deadbolt. It would have taken two keys to open this door. I circle back to my friends. Oh, lovely. That one's picking lice off the other one and eating them. Lice are good food. Do monkeys' moods match their expressions because that one over there looks depressed and that other one looks sullen? I don't trust him. I bet he's the instigator. Tell me again while we're here. Don't they have anyone working here? I haven't seen anyone. Who's in charge of this place, I ask. In the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, the front gate was open. Someone should be here. We leave the monkeys, stop to glance at the kangaroos, walk by a couple of sleeping bears. The elephants are in a sunken area that's partially surrounded by a moat. There's a brightly colored sign mounted above the enclosure that identifies them as Thomas and Geraldine. Because our perspective is elevated, mainly what's on view are the tops of their curved backs. Swaying and munching, they pay no attention to us, even though one of the women calls out a greeting. There's a sturdy awning at the back where they can take shelter. How'd they get out of there? Someone asks. There's going to be an opening through there, I tell them, pointing toward the rear of their lower level. The sidewalk leading to the back access of the enclosure is blocked by a flimsy knee-high chain with a do-not-enter sign swinging from it. I kick a leg over and the other women follow suit. The door to the elephants is around a curve and down a broad staircase composed of oversized steps. Can elephants climb stairs? A woman asks. Obviously they can, someone answers. The pathway leads to a huge portal, as wide as a double garage and at least 25 feet high, which makes sense as it's a passage for elephants. The door moves on rails and is held closed by a padlock on the left side. That's the lock Tansy would have had to have left open, I say. Getting back to the main walkway, we pass a woolly-headed buffalo, a quiet giraffe, a couple of ostriches, and a camel, all smelling bad, legs caked with their own filth. I can't believe there's no one around. Not a soul. It's bizarre. It's spooky is what it is. We've come to the wolves. Their fenced area is large and scrubby. Two brutish canines with intense golden eyes glare from beneath a tree in the back corner. They're bigger than I thought they'd be. Hey, what's that? Janine asks. What? Janine points to a mound on the other side of the fence, just a couple of feet in front of us. At first glance, it looks like a branch that's partially covered by dried leaves and soil. But a second look shows that it's a long bone, still with bloody meat on it. The whole mess is coated with dirt so that it blends in with its surroundings. They probably feed them cow legs or whatever, I say. No, next to it, it looks like... Ah! One of the women gives a shriek. It's human, someone says. A few feet away from the long bone is a portion of a jawbone, teeth exposed, also still splotched with meat and blood. Flies lift up and land, buzz up and resettle. Beyond that, tucked beneath some dry shrubs, is a mound of tan fabric. We don't know that, I say, trying to be the voice of reason, but she's right. It looks human. 
It could be a monkey. I pull out my phone and call the police. The six of us are kept at the park for two hours. First, the police show up, cars with lights spinning, eight people in uniform, plus Joe Epps and the department's other detective, Harold Urey. They mill a while outside the wolf's cage and talk about how odd it is that nobody seems to be working here. They point at the bones and say that surely there must be a way to move the wolves into the cages at the rear of the enclosure. After ten minutes of this, the whole group, including us, shifts towards the front entrance, arriving just as Tansy's car turns into the lot. Everyone follows her progress as she steers her ten-year-old Toyota between cop cars and an ambulance. Looking puzzled and alarmed, she emerges from behind the wheel, carrying a bag from Taco Bell and wearing a safari outfit that's the same color as the fabric in the wolf enclosure. With buttons straining across her breasts and the shirt tucked into two tight pants, the uniform is noticeably unflattering. Apparently, it's standard practice for the zoo to be left unattended while she goes off in search of lunch. She's immediately segregated from everyone else, taken to the far side of the cars and placed under the watchful eye of a policeman. A few minutes later, four officers escort her into the zoo. Presumably, she's going to get the wolves into the cages at the back of their enclosure. I wish I could go with them. I'm curious about how she's going to handle the scary animals. Since Caprock doesn't have a medical examiner, a doctor is summoned from the Baptist Hospital. A couple of uniforms construct a perimeter by stringing tape from one side of the zoo entrance, encircling us and all the police cars and the ambulance and ending at the other side. It forms a boundary that excludes the press, three vans and a couple of reporters holding microphones recording their bits for the news at five. A man in a suit offers interviews. I assume he's some sort of spokesperson, either for the city or the police department. The doctor turns into the lot. Two policemen meet her at her car, and the three of them duck under the tape and rush into the depths of the zoo. Then attention is turned in our direction as an officer is assigned to each of us. We're split up, escorted a distance away from one another, and interviewed separately. Here's how my interview goes. May I record our conversation? The policeman asks me. Sure, I tell him. Why were you at the zoo? He's only a few inches taller than I am and weighs three times what I do. Red hair, red face. Why does anybody come to the zoo, I ask. If it's not for people to go to, why is it here? Just answer the question, he orders. We thought it might be nice to get out of the office in the middle of the day. Did you see anything unusual? His squint is suspicious, as though this is a question I'd answer with a lie. I find human remains unusual. That hasn't been confirmed, he says. I give him a look that says I know what I know. How long were you here before you saw the bones? Twenty, twenty-five minutes, I tell him. And during that time, did you see anything unusual? This is the second time he's asked me the question. He seems to be putting a lot of weight on my opinion about what's usual and what's not. It was unusual that nobody seemed to be working here. It seemed like a bad idea to leave this many animals alone, especially when something fishy's been going on. At this moment, a communication passes through the uniforms via earphones, which I'm just now noticing. The officers conducting the interviews all pause, listen to the message, exchange glances. What is it? I ask. The remains are confirmed human, he tells me. We women are allowed to come back together. We talk among ourselves. Journalists stand just outside the barrier, eyeing us like we're prey. Warily, we return their gazes, plotting our two-car escape. We never had lunch. One of the women says, I'm starving, another says. 
It's at this point that the fabric in the wolf enclosure is identified as a zoo uniform. A scrap of sleeve bears the insignia of the Caprock Zoo and the designation of the chief zookeeper, Hector Vasquez, whom everybody thought was vacationing in Mexico. Of the four groups that I attend, drug and alcohol addiction takes itself most seriously. Oh, people in other groups, like grief and smokers, whine appropriately and wear grave expressions as they discuss their tribulations. But really, loss is a part of life, and so what if someone has a cigarette now and then? Addiction recovery is crucial. Unlike grieving or smoking, addiction completely destroys lives. An example is Bill, who is light-hearted, almost flippant, during possession obsession. He's only there because his girlfriend, Karen, has a complex relationship with pocketable items. He's not at all dedicated. But when he's at addiction, he's somber and focused. He tucks his shirt in and combs his hair. He prepares. As a heroin addict, he must remain drug-free or he'll never earn a regular paycheck, father children, or be out from under the rule of his parents, who, because of his many infractions and incarcerations, are his legal custodians. Most of the people in tonight's circle are legally bound, either by employers or probation departments, to take urine tests every two weeks. Some have been in prison. All, including me, have been in rehab. A personal explanation. Back when I was coming to terms with the reality that the world is basically evil, I developed a dependency on diazepam. That was eight years ago. Therapy helped. I still speak to Dr. Miley from time to time. I'm one of the first to, to arrive. The breeze outside is cool and fresh, and the heat inside the building hits me like a wall. I'm in the process of taking off my jacket as I enter the meeting room. Carol, the police operator who took my call about the monkeys, is already there, and she's on the lookout for me. Seeing me about to come in, she jumps from her seat, rushes at me, and heads me off before I make it through the door. Gripping my arm with strong fingers, she drags me back out to the hallway. Talk to me, she says, putting her face close to mine in an attempt to intimidate. She's a broad woman and almost a foot taller than I am. So I shuffle back because she's taking over my space. But she moves with me, keeping me pinned without actually making contact. A tactic she probably learned at cop school. Her breath is sharp and garlicky. She hasn't even allowed me a few seconds to fully extricate my arms from the sleeves of my jacket. I open my mouth to reply, but, too impatient to allow any opinion other than her own, too indignant to let me have my say, she overrides. When I say wait there, I mean wait there. When I'm on the other end of that phone, I'm the voice of authority, not your friend from addiction. I'm to be obeyed, not ignored. I'm sorry, I say. I'm not really, but this seems to be what she wants. And then you found Hector Vasquez's body. Twice now, you've been at the zoo when something's happened. Now that she's received her apology, her voice softens and she retreats a bit. Can you see how that looks suspicious? I didn't discover that body all by myself, I tell her. I finish removing my jacket, shake the wrinkles out, and fold it over my arm. Are you involved in freeing the animals? She asks. Of course not. Then why were you there? I'm a curious person, I tell her. I wanted to see for myself. Though I try for a casual tone, I still sound disingenuous. And now Hector Vasquez has been murdered. Nobody said anything about murder, she says defensively. He was probably careless. It happens. Is Hector that guy who came to addiction for a while? Could be. She looks thoughtful before adding, which makes it all more likely that this was some kind of drug or alcohol-related accident. Is that what the police think? I want to know. You'll be informed when the rest of the general public is, she replies. You need to stay out of it and let us do our jobs. Why do you always have to be in the middle of every little thing?
I have no answer for her. I'm concerned because it never occurred to me not to be. Her use of the word always indicates that, in her opinion, this isn't the first time my interest has been unwelcome. Is this what she truly thinks? Does she see me as a nosy nuisance? Maria pops out and tells us it's time to get started, but Carol's the sort who always has to have the last word. You need to seriously consider returning to your therapist, she says. Her compassionate gaze comes across as condescending. You need to figure out what's really going on inside your head. Who does she think she is telling me what I need to do? I don't like it when people think they know what's best for me. She practically attacked me out there. During the first 20 minutes of the meeting, I stew in my resentment. But then the rest of what Carol said works its way into my thoughts. Has my meddling gotten so out of hand that others see me as a pest? Why am I so bothered by something that clearly has nothing to do with me? Is she right? Do I need to make an appointment with Dr. Miley? As I sit there, surrounded by people who have problems much more ponderous and immediate than my puny years-ago dependency, I perform a mental evaluation. Am I frightened? Do I feel like I'm being watched? Has there been a change in my behavior? Has some disparity in my environment provoked a disproportionate response? Am I feeling detached or removed from what's going on around me? No, to all of the above, I'm fine. During the break, unlike in grief or smoking, we're allowed to smoke, which means my second cigarette of the week. Of the 15 present, there are only four members who don't smoke, and one of them is Carol, so I don't have to worry about her harassing me during my free time. Just like during Possession Obsession, we shuffle out the side door and across the street. Only tonight, there are 11 of us instead of just five. In addiction treatment, sometimes people substitute one addiction for another, which is the reason why so many here smoke. This group adopts the philosophy of treating one addiction at a time, which means nicotine will have to wait until the heroin or cocaine or alcohol is under control. We circle around the bench and light up. We all inhale in unison. I keep mine shallow. Most exhalations are accompanied by a sigh of appreciation. I smother a cough. One of the guys starts the conversation by asking who's going to the game tomorrow. I am, someone says. Me too, from someone else. What about you, Sandra? I'm not sure who asked the question. I haven't given the matter any thought. The whole town will be at the stadium tomorrow. And where will I be? No, I say. I can't make it. I don't sleep well. The cat is an unfamiliar and annoying weight at my hip. Carol's remarks, the disdain, the artificial concern, are running through my head, a persistent and unsettling refrain. Also, I can't get the picture of that human jawbone out of my mind. How are the other women coping? Finally, at 4.30, I give up on sleep. I'll go for a run. Exercise is an effective mood leveler, and when I have doubts about how I'm handling things, it helps to tie on the shoes and pound out a regular beat while everything around me is still and dark. This morning, my run takes me to Donald's neighborhood. I've been distracted by whatever's going on at the zoo, but I haven't forgotten the mystery surrounding Donald. Why is he in possession obsession, and why won't he talk about himself? Also, viewing this in the context of Carol's comments from the night before, why am I the only one who is curious? Nobody else in the group seems disturbed by Donald's reticence. Or do they know something I don't? Is the whole group keeping something from me? And if so, why? It's five in the morning. The houses are dark. All except Donald's, whose window prints soft rectangles on his front lawn. Why is he up so early? As I draw near, the aroma of morning food teases my nose. Bacon. Placing myself to the side of the front window, I watch as Donald stands in front of his stove. 
Spatula in hand, he adjusts bacon and flips eggs. He likes them over easy. What he's wearing is more costume than clothes, a vest, tan with snaps, zippers, and pockets. A flannel shirt and baggy khakis. His brown hair stands up straight on his head, and his chin and jaw are sprinkled with silver bristles. Beyond the stove, spread neatly across the counter, are supplies. A tackle box, a couple of poles, a hat with a full brim. There's only one place to fish in the area, Lake Verity, a 50-minute drive to the east. Daddy used to take me fishing there. The lake was home to small perch and catfish, no bass or drum. We had a boat that we'd take close to the reeds and into the little coves. The waves would rock us and the sun scattered twinkles across the water as we angled our rods. Daddy would whistle tunelessly under his breath. For some reason, our sandwiches tasted better on the boat than they ever did in the kitchen at home. Inevitably, there came a time when my weekends were too busy and Daddy moved on to other interests. He sold the boat several years ago. The thought of threading a worm on a hook and throwing out a line is tempting. It would be pleasant to hover over blue water, to feel a fresh morning breeze away from buildings and roads and noise. Shore fishing isn't as agreeable as fishing from a boat, but there are a couple of docks built over the water that people cast from. A day license can be purchased from the ranger station that's set up between the docks, and I'm pretty sure my rod and reel are still in my parents' garage. Donald still has a big breakfast to get through. Feeling a sense of urgency about getting ready and getting out there, I run back to the house and don't even bother to shower. I stuff my hair under a baseball cap and pull on sweatpants, a t-shirt, and a jacket. After checking that the cats got food and water, I drive to my parents' house and gather the supplies. An hour later, I'm holding out ten bucks to the park ranger, seven for the license, and three for the container of worms. There are four people fishing off the dock, Donald not among them. They're spaced evenly, and there doesn't seem to be any communication or relationship between any of them. They're simply doing what I intend to do, enjoying peaceful solitude before the sun gets bright and high. I go about halfway out, the planks beneath my feet echoing hollowly. I place myself between two men, but on the opposite side. A couple of the other fishermen have stools. They all have coolers or thermal food containers. I should have eaten something or brought something to eat. I'm going to get hungry. I check the line and hook and the flow of the spool. Then I open the container of worms, dig one out of the black soil. It's been a while, but I still remember how to thread the squiggly little critter onto the hook. By the time Donald turns into the parking lot on the shore, I've had my line in the water for ten minutes. I keep my eye on him as he gathers his gear from the rear of his truck. He walks by the ranger station, which tells me he's got a year-round license. Fishing must be a regular Saturday morning excursion for him. He could just as easily have chosen the other dock, which is a couple of hundred yards away, but he turns onto the one I'm on. As he passes behind me, I keep my face turned toward the water. I doubt he's paying enough attention to his surroundings to realize I'm someone he knows. He makes his way to the far end of the dock, as far from the shore as he can get, where he focuses on setting up his gear. He's smoother with the equipment than I am, and his cast is fluid, like he's got a fly-fishing past, which once again makes me wonder where he's from originally and how he ended up here. Also, I wonder what he thinks about as he leans against the rail and grasps his fishing pole. Is his head as empty as a cat's or a monkey's? Or is he churning through conundrums or philosophies or imagined slights? Or maybe he's thinking about how lonely he is, because he sure seems lonely to me. 
A time or two my float bobs, like maybe I'm getting a nibble, but it never goes completely under. Every once in a while I reel the hook in, remove the ragged portion of worm that remains, put on a fresh one, and drop it back in. I remain on the dock for a couple of hours, then pack up and leave. As to Donald, I've learned a few details that might pertain. He fishes regularly, and he comes from a fly-fishing state. When I get back to town, I stop by the store and buy eggs and bacon. Though usually I like my eggs scrambled, this morning I make them over easy. It takes skill and timing to flip without breaking the yellows. They're delicious. After breakfast, I call Hazel, my friend from work. She's seemed on edge lately, and I'm not sure why. I'm in the middle of something, she tells me. Can I get back to you? Speaking loudly to be heard over a roar in the background, she sounds cross and tense, which is unusual. Ordinarily, she's one of the calmest people I know. Are you all right? I ask. Do you need me to come over? No, I'm fine, she replies. I've got to go. You call me back in ten minutes or I'm coming over, I tell her. What could possibly be driving her behavior? I've worked with her for almost nine years, and she's always been rational and composed, but lately she's been late to work. Her clothes have been wrinkled, and her hair's been a mess. She's been abrupt and secretive, and her harried response just now, completely out of character. She calls me back in five. What's going on with you? I demand. I was just in the middle of something with Pop, she explains. Is he being difficult? When is he not? Have you thought about getting a caregiver for him? I ask. Maybe the woman who cares for him during the day isn't reliable, and that's the reason Hazel's been coming in late. We've tried it, she says, but they never come when they say they're going to, and the agency never sends the same person twice, which is annoying. It's a process. Are you going to the game this afternoon? I ask. Oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. Load Pop into the car and push him in his wheelchair through the biggest, loudest, most crowded event of the year. But maybe it would help to get him out of the house, I suggest. We could do something low-key. Hey, we could take him to the zoo. That would have a calming effect. The zoo? Why would you bring up the zoo? Her voice has gone squeaky. She's practically hysterical. You don't think I had anything to do with those animals getting out, do you? Because I absolutely did not. What's with you, Hazel? I ask. Of course I don't think that. I just thought the zoo would be pleasant for him. And now a dead body out there. It's probably not even open. And then she ends the call. She's not there anymore. This concludes the second part of Snooping Caprock, in which Sandra and her friends discovered a dead body at the zoo. In the next installment, Sandra witnesses a violent confrontation between Hazel and her elderly father, visits the family of the deceased man found in the wolf enclosure, and becomes anxious about the new support group for abused women that's meeting at the CCC.